The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Galwell. I'm Esteban Gomez. I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli. And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place. Three, two, one, and liftoff. And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid. And others don't. Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) And we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors, from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds, are human acts of reclamation. That was according to the wishes of the descendant community. We are Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Shiloh Maples. I'm Turtle Clan. I'm Anishinaabe. I'm a citizen of the Little River Band of Ottawa. I also belong to the Ojibwe people of Swan Creek and Black River. I am speaking to you from my homelands here in the Great Lakes. Welcome to Spirit Plate. In this space, we will talk about indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Within this growing indigenous food movement, there is an incredible story of reclamation and intertribal solidarity. Powerful yet untold examples of Native peoples resisting and thriving. The stories of our foodways are one of the greatest testaments of Indigenous brilliance and our beauty of spirit. But before we can talk about Indigenous peoples' food traditions and contemporary efforts to revitalize their food systems, we have to understand the history of disruption that makes this work necessary. Today, I've invited Becky Webster, Oneida seed keeper, farmer, and attorney to talk about the Oneida people's relocation experience and how she's helping to revitalize her community's ancestral foods. In this episode, we'll take a closer look at some of the events from the removal era, which took place between the 1830s and 1880s, and how indigenous communities have endured and adapted after displacement from their ancestral homelands. So before we start the interview, could you please introduce yourself any way that you would like? So you could do it in the language, you could describe any particular professional or community role, any way you would like. Sure. So, Goli Swagweg, Ganyate Gay Luni Yungetsun Gwehwene, 
Becky Webster Nyungets Otslunige, Wagwaho Niwagit Kalod, Oniote Aga Niwagadahuan Jot, Dulunkawane Niwagenyu. So, in English, what I just said is greetings, everybody. My name is Ganyata Gay, which means snow scattered here and there. My English name is Becky Webster. I'm Wolf Clan, I'm Oneida, and I grew up near Duck Creek that runs through the Oneida Reservation in Wisconsin. Thank you for joining me today, Becky. Thanks for having me. For those who may not be as familiar with the Oneida Nation, could you provide a little history or background for us? Sure. So the Oneida people, we're originally from what's now New York State, and we came over to Wisconsin or what would later become Wisconsin in the early 1800s. What were some of the factors that led to that relocation? So there were a lot of factors that led to our removal here to Wisconsin. This was right on the tail end of the Revolutionary War. There was a lot of disputes within the Confederacy. So the Oneida people are part of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which consists of the Mohawk, Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, Seneca, and the Tuscarora later on joined the Confederacy. There was a lot of disputes going on within the Confederacy around the time of the Revolutionary War as to whose side should the Confederacy take. Originally, we wanted to remain neutral, and we tried to remain neutral, but we were unable to do so. The Oneida and the Tuscarora sided with the colonists, and everyone else sided with the British. So that led to some a really dark time in our history. In the early 1800s, land-hungry settlers were moving from the East Coast further into the interior of the continent. However, the indigenous tribes that resided along the eastern seaboard remained a huge obstacle to westward expansion. In 1830, President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act into law. This authorized the U.S. president to grant federal lands west of the Mississippi to the tribes that agreed to give up their lands. Some tribes, such as the Seminole, resisted relocation for years, engaging in a series of armed conflicts before retreating into the Everglades. Unfortunately, after facing continued threats or literal violence, many tribes were unsuccessful in their resistance. Many are familiar with the Trail of Tears involving the Cherokee people. However, many other indigenous nations also experienced their own forced relocation and displacement during this era. The Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, Wyandotte, Kickapoo, Potawatomi, Shawnee, Lenape, and many others were relocated to what was then called Indian Territory, or what is now known as Oklahoma. Along the way, these people experienced disease, starvation, and exposure to the elements. Thousands perished on the journey. By the mid-1800s, tens of thousands of Native people had been removed from their homelands along the eastern seaboard. The United people, we tried to bring the Confederacy together along with all of the other folks in the Confederacy, but we were unable to do so. So the Onondagas covered the council fire during that time. After the Revolutionary War was over, we relit the council fire and resumed being a Confederacy. So even though that we were rejoined at that time or rekindled that Confederacy fire, we still suffered a lot of losses during that time. So countless families perished, either due to the direct warfare or through the destruction of our foodways. 
We lost our homes. We froze in the following winter. We were scattered and landless due to a series of illegal treaties with the state of New York. We were suffering from alcoholism. So it was a really dark time for our Confederacy. So we have Scanyet de Leo or Handsome Lake rejoined the Confederacy, revived our ceremonies. That wasn't enough, though, because we were still landless. We were still facing the effects of alcoholism. There was still some divides mm-hmm. within the Confederacy. It just wasn't the way that it was before. And there were more and more settlers coming into our territory. In 1851, the Indian Appropriations Act led to Western tribes being moved on reservations, which they were prohibited from leaving unless granted permission from a government agent. Confined to reservation boundaries, Native peoples found themselves restricted in their ability to hunt, fish, and gather. When people were removed and displaced from their homelands, it wasn't just a physical displacement. As their relationship to land and their more-than-human relatives were severed, This was a spiritual displacement as well. Many indigenous people lost access to the foods and medicines that had sustained previous generations. The U.S. government often made promises of financial assistance and material goods to establish their new lives. For some tribes, the U.S. government sent food rations, which introduced wheat flour, sugar, salt, and sometimes, when available, coffee. These rations were insufficient inconsistent, and sometimes arrived moldy. A regular diet of these rationed foods lacked basic nutrients, which led to widespread malnutrition and starvation. In addition to the impacts of an inadequate diet, forced living in close quarters resulted in the spread of disease. Together, these two pieces of legislation, the Removal Act and the Indian Appropriation Act, sent the precedents for today's reservation system. The policies and events of this era are still felt today, as many tribal nations that were relocated still reside in these new places. Although many communities experienced similar pressures and challenges during these forced removals, each nation has its own unique story and journey. We ended up following a Christian missionary to what would later become Wisconsin. Their original plan, and I didn't know this until relatively recently, was that the whole Confederacy was supposed to come with us. We were all supposed to move westward to Wisconsin based on our agreements with the Menominee and the Ho-Chunk to share this territory with them. It Mm -hmm. didn't happen. The Oneidas and the Stockbridge were the only people, and the Brotherton were the only ones to come from New York over to Wisconsin during that time. And from my understanding, not all of the Oneida Nation made that decision, right? Not everyone relocated. Yeah, so there was a lot of back and forth. So there were three main waves of people that came to Wisconsin. Some people stopped off in Canada and stayed there at the Thames. Some people came to Wisconsin and then turned right around and went back, either stopping at the Thames or going all the way back to Oneida. And even in those successive years after settling here, there was a lot of traveling back and forth like we had done for millennia throughout North America, and even South America. So there was a lot of movement of the people throughout those territories. But again, like the issues that we were having during the Revolutionary War, there are even still issues today about the different Oneida communities and their perspectives about the Oneida people here in Wisconsin. 
saying that we abandoned them. We left. I think that's a little Mm -hmm. bit unfair to say because our ancestors were doing the best they could with what they had at the time. I can't imagine what that must have been like to face the decision of moving from where your people say is the origin of human beings. That's a pretty powerful thing. That was our homeland. That is all that our people within that memory have ever known. And to pick up, move away from the rest of the people in our Confederacy, hundreds of miles away, and try to survive. I can't imagine what that must have been like. And then to go through those decisions, and then later, your relatives, your brothers and sisters who remained out east would say that we abandoned them. I think that's a pretty painful experience to hear people say that and to even live through that today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. And so what was that removal or relocation? What was that journey like for your community? So there was a combination of boats and walking and just different ways to get here through the Great Lakes. I know we've carried seeds with us. And that's a huge part of what I'm trying to learn about now is what seeds did we take with us? And what were those seeds? And are we still growing them here in our community? And we're slowly finding out more and more about that by talking to people. But if you could also imagine coming through and being so hungry and you have these seeds with you, the question, do you eat them or do you plant them so that you can have more in that following year? And I'm sure when they landed here, they were very hungry and they did not eat all of those seeds. They saved enough so that when we came here, the first thing that we did is we started to clear land for gardens. I want to come back to those early years in Wisconsin in just a moment, but I was wondering, how are the relations with the Menominee people and other nations in the area, you know, upon Neonida's arrival? So my understanding is that we negotiated with the Menominees and the Ho-Chunks. We actually purchased the ability to stay here. Now, again, we have to understand that our concept during that time of land ownership was very different than what the Europeans' concept of land ownership and land titles is. That's not to say that we didn't have territories, that even families didn't have berry patches. We had an idea of who's using what land but we did so in a way that we worked together with our human neighbors and our plant and animal relatives as well. So it was a way for us to be able to coexist peacefully here. And we did so with the people that were here in the area for a long time. And you can see that, especially of the numbers of intermarriages that were happening. There were a lot of families that are married within Oneida and Menominee, Oneida Ho-Chunk, all throughout Wisconsin for generations since our first arrival here. So we were able to make this our new homeland and create a place for future generations to live here in harmony with the different tribes around us and with all of creation around us. What was life like in these first years or the first little bit after relocating? Well, you can see by the the allotment maps that came through in the 1880s or 1890s or so, where the settlement pattern are. So we settled along Duck Creek that runs through the whole reservation, and we set up our homesteads right along the creek. 
So we started to build our homes. And also it's important to understand that the Oneida people during this time were heavily Christianized. So we were building homes just like the white settlers were, even though there was a number of us that still maintained our traditional identity and culture. So for the most part, though, outward facing, we built our homes and had farms, just like a lot of the non-Indian neighbors that would soon relocate and be around and in, in among us. And how did this relocation impact the United People's diet or foodways? So I'm not so sure it, it affected our foodways as much just by the fact that we were removed, except for that we had land again. So remember when we were over in New York, we had all of these land deals, not only with land companies like the Ogden Land Company and different people just trying to get at our land, but the state of New York as well. So we were almost landless. So if we're an agricultural people, how do you maintain your agricultural lifestyle if you have almost no land? We did have some land, but it certainly wasn't enough to support the entirety of the Oneida population. So when we were removed to Wisconsin, we were able again to resume that agricultural lifestyle. Sure, we had a lot of work to do to clear some land to get it ready for that, but our, the land here in Wisconsin was a whole lot like the land in our homelands. So it was familiar to us, a lot of the same plants and animals. The climate was the same. So we were again able to flourish as an agricultural people and rely on ourselves and just really reestablish ourselves as Oneida people in those relationships with our foods. And you started to touch on this a little bit already, and you mentioned that you're just really starting to learn more about this right now, but are there any specific foods or seeds that made the journey with the Oneida people? My understanding is we have an Oneida corn, which is a lot like the Tuscarora white corn that a lot of people throughout the Confederacy and everywhere else grows that had still been grown in our community. And there are beans that have been continuously grown. And we are growing some of those beans here on our farmstead. So that was pretty exciting to be able to track those down. What we're trying to do is trying to talk to different people in our community about those beans and especially their names so that we can find out more about their history and how long we have been growing them. But we are slowly through talking to people and showing them pictures, oh, and I'll jog a memory of those seeds that they may have had. So we are doing our best to try to revive them and share them out with the community. You're starting to lead into my next question here a little bit already, but how are you continuing to preserve and practice your traditional food ways, like in your own life? What does that look like for you as a citizen of the United Nation? So we have a 10-acre farmstead here on the reservation called It means our foods where we plant things. So a faith keeper named our property this after we explained what our plans were for this place. He really wanted to be able to be another resource for our community to come to not only just have access to more of our indigenous varieties of seeds, to understand how to plant them and how to plant them in the traditional methods, meaning the planting them in Three Sisters Gardens in the mounds, then how to take care of those plants, how to harvest them, how to preserve them, how to eat them, the different cooking tools and implements that go along with that. So just everything that celebrates our foods here. We've hosted 
a number of events. Even during COVID this summer, we had, I think, three or four small events where we had folks come and help not only harvest, but cook our foods over an open fire in our clay pots, using our, you know, basketry, using the different traditional tools and implements in preparing our foods. And and let me tell you, our foods just really taste different and they hit different when you're using your traditional methods to do that. Can you give us some examples of what some of the foods were that you were preparing? Sure. So we, of course, had the corn soups, but my favorite was to cook our ganastohal, which is our cornbread, over the fire. And we wrapped the cornbread in some leaves at the time that were still green. And then we put those under the coals and it just has a whole different taste. So one of the ways that we make our ganastohal, the most common way is by taking some corn flour and some beans, mixing them together and then putting some boiling water in and then you form these like almost hockey puck sized cakes. Some people, the old timers, they made them the size of dinner plates. I'm not that skilled yet to be able to get it to hold together. So we've made kind of smaller ones and then you put that into a slow rolling boil of water over a stove and then you wait about 20 to 30 minutes or so depending on how big your ganastoha loaves are. And then when they start to float, you can kind of tell they're done. So that's that's the way most of us are familiar with how to make them. But we had started to read in the WPA stories that Oneida people collected from other Oneida people in the late 1930s, early 1940s, about putting these breads in the coals over a fire outside. So that's something that we were able to do a number of times this summer. And even just experimenting with different toppings on them, like mashing up some berries with maple syrup and putting that on mm. there. It's it's something really delicious stuff, let me tell you. My mouth is watering just <laughs> listening to that. I, I really love some yes. uh, Oneida cornbread. So I know this might be a, a difficult question to answer, but thinking about all the different foods that you're growing and at your farm, do you have any favorites or ones that you're really excited about right now? So I do, you know, like your children, you're not supposed to pick favorites, right? Well, I suppose they're to the sisters, so it's not like they're your children. I really do like the beans the best. I think they are the most generous and most forgiving of the three sisters. And the bean varieties that I was most excited about this summer were the ones that we received from the family of Ken Hill, who was a bean grower for many, many years here in our community. And he passed away a number of years ago. And one of his grandsons came over and traded us for four of the varieties of his beans. So we were able to grow those out. And they they all did phenomenal. And one variety in particular, which we're still trying to hunt the name for that bean, we just call it Ken's favorite. So that bean, we're planning on planting an entire high tunnel's worth of just that bean so that we can share that out with the community so that his beans will continue to grow in a number of different yards and properties throughout the reservation. Could you describe some of the characteristics of Ken's favorite? Sure. She's a pole bean. And my understanding is that she was not necessarily supposed to be a full pole bean, but these ones that we grew in the high tunnel this summer and they just really took off. So we'll see what they grow just outside normal. But the pods themselves are just really remarkable because they turn this striped, almost a fuchsia color, and they're really beautiful. So 
There's that bean and another bean that are very similar, but the beans themselves have different shapes. So her name might be Dogwa, but we're not sure. And we just need to do a little more talking with people. My other hope too is for those bean varieties to send them back out east so that some of my seed mentors out there might be able to grow her and see if they recognize her so that we can start to piece together the Mm. stories of those beans. Because, you know, a lot of us have the same bean in different communities. She has different names because they've been in different communities for so long. So it's kind of funny. So like one of the varieties that we grew a lot of this year, we know her as the Haudenosaunee True Red Cranberry Bean. And she's just a nice, round, plump little bean. And he's just fantastic in soups. That's the one that we grew enough to be able to fill a giant ball jar, which is about five gallons. And so it's just kind of crazy that we were finally able to grow that much of one variety. The Mohawks out there call her a Mohawk cranberry bean. So we're a little nervous about sending us some of our Oneida seeds that way because they may come back with Mohawk names. <laughs> I love that intention, though, of sharing seeds back with the folks eastward. I'm going to have to follow up and, and hearing how that goes. So I know that another part of what you've been doing in your community is you're a part of a growers cooperative. Can you tell us about that and how that got started? Sure. So we have about 10 families that make up Ohelagu, which means among the corn stalks. And there's different versions of why different people came together to join this co-op. For us, our family, we really enjoy some corn soup and some Gunnestohal. And it's a very labor intensive product. Most of our foods are. So even though the Oneida Nation has Junhinkwa, which grows the corn, the cannery that processes the corn, and the retail outlets that sell it, it's still a little bit pricey. So we would, you know, grow some in our backyard and whatnot. But the concern that we had was that the Oneida Nation did such an amazing job with getting people to want to eat more of our corn that they couldn't keep up with the demand. So people would get really upset. So we had these large tribal meetings. By large, I mean like 1,700 people would be in a meeting with microphones and complaining about Junhinkwa for not growing enough corn and being very critical of the tribal operations and the amount of corn that they produced for our community. So a group of us got together and we said, hold on, wait a minute. This is not the tribal government's responsibility to provide all of the corn for our whole community. As community members and as families, we have a responsibility too. So we got together, even though most of us didn't have a clue what we were doing. We found out how to lease out some space about, I think we did maybe two or three acres that first year. And we relied heavily on different people in our community to help guide us in what we were doing. So a lot of us never even drove a tractor before or anything like that. And we planted and we had some folks from out east come and help us pick, help teach us different things that were really important. Like, be careful how much you pick in the morning because you need to have all that corn situated that day. 
it's really easy to go out in the field and get carried away and think I can husk and braid that tomorrow, which might not always be a good idea, especially if there's moisture in that corn. So just as an example of that, that we had to really lean on our mentors, not only here in the community, but out east to be able to make that happen. And every successive year, our co-op has grown different people come and go. We've tried different types of corn, but none have been as successful as the Tuscarora white corn that a lot of us grow. So that's been really exciting. One of the things too with our co-op is that while we do conventionally plant, we get the fields ready with tractors, we use all organic fertilizers and amendments to the soil. After we plant, we cultivate with a tractor until the corn gets so high. But after that point, everything is by hand. So we hand weed, we hand harvest, we do all of this as a group. And then at the end of the season, we divide up our corn based on how much people put in that season. One of our fields for the co-op though, is because we recognize that this conventional method of farming, even though we're using these organic amendments, isn't really the best thing for the earth. We know that the best way to do that mm -hmm. is by hand, by disrupting the soil as little as possible, by not concentrating on yield, but concentrating on the, the soil health and the relationships between the soil and the microbes and the, all the animals that live in the soil and the plants themselves. But we also understand that if you want to grow food on a scale that we're able to, to be able to feed larger amounts of people, that we're trying to find some type of a compromise there. So we're experimenting on one of our fields with different minimal till, with the goal of no-till methods, interseeding, planting different cover crops. It hasn't been as successful yet as our conventional farming methods, but we're not going to give up on it because we have to find a different compromise because that conventional planting method might produce yields right now but it's not good in the long term for our soil or for our people. Could you also tell us a little bit about the barter market that you've been involved with in your community? Yeah, sure. So friends of ours, Jen Falk and Tony Kuchma, they have a farmstead called Gahunlahale. It means gun where it hangs. That's our traditional name for that part of the reservation where their farmstead is. And they're doing a lot of amazing things there. Not only do they grow our traditional foods, they also grow more contemporary foods like potatoes and garlic and these amazing peppers. They also have animals there. So they have chickens and turkeys and pigs and, and now they have a whole bunch of goats over there. So it's, it's a proper farm that they have going on. Jen decided that she wanted to host this barter market. And we had been bartering our corn for a few years as each of us receives our share of the corn from the co-op with this idea that we don't want to sell our corn because we think that that's really disempowering to the people to break down what they have to offer in monetary terms. And we also think it might be a little concerning to the corn itself because how do you put value on your relative by having that dollar amount there for the corn? So we mm -hmm. started bartering for our foods and for our corn. And because people think that, oh, I don't have anything to trade. Like, well, you do. You have these amazing skills and abilities. So we've traded for things like haircuts and singing lessons proofreading papers, math tutoring, finding medicines in the woods. 
you know, of course, my favorites are always, you know, the elk are things that you can't get around here. But we've traded for mm-hmm. so many different things. And it's just so empowering to people so that they understand that their worth is not measured in a dollar either, but that what they can give or what they can offer in exchange for this very labor intensive product, our food relatives. So Jen decided to organize this event. And last year was the first year that we did this amidst COVID. So we were all masked up and we would bring our tables and chairs there and we would set out our wares and our products. And the only rule there was no money. So we had to exchange all of our stuff that we had. So people brought a lot of canned goods that they can themselves, different salves, Jen had a few like coupons for soups. So on a, like a random Tuesday, you'd have Jen make soup for you and said, so you don't have to cook for your family that night. So we just had all kinds of different things that we brought to trade. And it was really exciting to be able to see all of these different transactions that were happening and people were happy with what they were getting. We offloaded some of our excess of items for things that we couldn't either grow ourselves or we just didn't grow ourselves. The whole event was just really fun because not only was it a social event, but we got to learn more about the skills and things that different people had to offer. And this year we had another event and it was equally as exciting. We had more people that were able to come to this event. And we also at the end had Trader Blanket. Two of our co-op members had traveled to Florida on the powwow circuit down there, and they had this event called a Trader Blanket, and then she brought that back up. And that's a way for us to go around in a circle and put things in the middle to work out a trade in front of everybody. So that was really fun and exciting to be able to do that as well. So I think this whole idea of recognizing that you just can't go around buying everything with money that we have to rely on each other and our skills and what we can offer to help our community out. Yeah, I just love the entire idea. It's been really inspirational to me in thinking about what that might look like where I live, how I can make something like that happen. You know, it makes me really think about how we can revitalize both traditional trade and economic systems in the present day. So I have two more questions for you. The first is, what does food sovereignty mean to you personally? So, you know, that's a huge word, right? It can mean so many different things to so many people. But for me, I think it's about us reclaiming our identity and reclaiming our place, reclaiming those relationships with our food relatives and recognizing that we are in a really privileged time because Within my lifetime, even, it was okay to make our ceremonies illegal, to punish people for speaking their language. So we are now in a time that we are able to have access to different resources in our community, to have different classes. We're actually having classes about these things, you know, language, our arts, all these different things in our community. So like, for example, I never went to Longhouse. My mom forbid me to go to Longhouse. She was raised Catholic. I was raised Catholic. The longhouse was literally down the road from where I grew up. But there was still that shame and that stigma that went along with it. And when my husband and I moved down to Madison for school and we said, when we come home, we're going to go to longhouse. When we come home, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Well, we came home to really realize just how 
embedded the Christian religion was in our family and in our community, we were really afraid because we were worried, what would they say if we went to Longhouse? What would we do when we got there? Because even though we both grew up in this community, we're not a part of that. And a lot of our family was not a part of that. To fast forward a bit, now my daughters, they've taken a number of language classes. They've done, you know, music of our culture programs. Longhouses is like home to them. We're raising them in a different time than even when with our generation, what we grew up with. I think that all has to do with, with our language, our culture, and our foods, because our foods are what's helping us bring us back to all of this stuff. Our longhouse is where we go to celebrate the changing of the seasons and what all of creation is offering to us. It's a bit more than a religion. It's more of a way of life, a way to be thankful, and a way to gather with our friends and our relatives in celebration. Just a short story, when we were heading out east as part of our co-op to learn more about our traditional growing practices and to get some seeds from our mentors out east, we actually timed it so that they were having seed ceremony out there at their longhouse. And me and my daughters had been going to ceremony for a bit, but my husband still wasn't yet. He was still a little bit nervous about it. And so we went out there and somebody asked, so are we going to longhouse? And Elder in our group said, yes, yes, we are, all of us. <laughs> and so everybody went to Longhouse, my husband included. So we joke that I had to drag him all the way out to Onondaga to get him into a Longhouse. But ever since then, he's been coming to our Longhouse. It's really a welcoming home. It feels like, like it's doing that. And it's so ironic that it's our foods and our seeds that brought him back to our culture. Yeah, I think it's it's done that for me. A lot of people that find themselves engaged in this work, our foods are a pathway back to ourselves. It's really incredible to experience that myself, but also to witness it for other people. All right, Becky, last question. So I'm inviting you to a feast honoring all of our relations. What are you bringing and why? <laughs> I can only bring one thing. Oh, <laughs> At my. least one thing. A feast, what would I bring? I don't know. What time of year is it? Um, springtime. <laughs> oh, I would have to go a two-parter here with our corn soup and our gunnestohal. They go hand in hand for our meals. But I think with the corn soup, I would go with a little bit of a different than our, our classic corn beans and our either smoked pork or smoked turkey. And I would go with our three sisters soup because that really captures the three sisters. That's with our corn, our bean, our squash. We have other things in there like carrots and parsnips and tomatoes. You feel good after you eat that kind of food. And then to pair that with some of our gunnestohal, I might even have to get extra fancy and make it over the fire too, just so you can taste some of that. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I just want to say miigwech for generously sharing your time, knowledge, and experiences with us and... I wish you all the best with all your efforts that you're working on in your community. Thanks. Yanko. The Spirit Plate Podcast is an honoring of all the Indigenous communities across Turtle Island who are working to preserve and revitalize their ancestral foodways. In this space, we will talk about Indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Thank you for listening to Removal and Relocation, Episode 4 of Spirit Plate. We hope you enjoyed it.
A big thank you to Becky Webster, Oneida Seedkeeper, farmer, and attorney. You can follow Becky and her farm on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube by searching Ungwakwa. That is U-K-W-A-K-H-A-W. Throughout Season 1, we'll discuss some of the social, political, and historical reasons why the Indigenous food sovereignty movement is necessary. A critical understanding of the journey that led us here needs to become a more common understanding before American society can give life to a new, more equitable food system. And a more equitable food system requires narrative equity. Indigenous people must get to define their own relationship to land and food and tell the story of their work themselves. Through interviews with seed keepers, chefs, farmers, and community members, this podcast will share what food justice and sovereignty looks like for Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. As your host, I'm inviting you to the table and into a deeper conversation. I hope that you'll be inspired to think about your own connection to place and how this has influenced your relationship to food. I also hope you'll feel moved to build genuine relationships with the original caretakers of the place you reside and consider how you can stand in solidarity with their communities. If you would like to learn which Indigenous communities' homeland you reside upon, visit native-land.ca. That is N-A-T-I-V-E-L-A-N-D.ca. You can subscribe to Spirit Play anywhere you get your podcasts, and we'll be back next week with Eric Hemingway, the Director of Repatriation, Archives, and Records at the Little Traverse Bay Bands of Odawa, about the policies and events that took place throughout the allotment era and how those impacted Odawa relationships to land. Spirit Plate is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Spirit Plate team, producer and music composer Kat Yang, audio editors Kat Salinas and Bethany Sands, researcher Giselle Kennedy-Lord, and intern Indigo Clarkson. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glassier, sound engineer and music designer Max Kuddlechuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant Amalisa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, at Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com. Until next time, bye ma pee.